So we always work really hard to relate the gospel to daily events. This is a tough week to preach because nothing interesting happened this week. <laughs> so coming into this week, I, uh, for various reasons, was reading James Michener's Iberia, his book about Spain. And uh, that's now like a 50-year-old book and was written while Franco still had like seven or eight years to be dictator in that country. And, and I was fascinated, at one point he's uh, interviewing a local politician in Spain who is looking from his Spanish perspective to the United States, and, and he said admiringly of us, um, it, it's amazing how every September, uh, not every September, every, once every four years in September, you, you start to tear yourselves apart as a country, and then in November, you all come back together. I kind of wondered, wow, would that guy still say that of us today? Hopefully we do all come back together in November. But it sure ain't September anymore in terms of when the election begins. And even if the primaries began back 50 years ago earlier, uh, this year we had, what, a two-year election cycle. Uh, more money than ever spent. I think most people would say uh, lots of disappointment in the candidates we ended up with and a lower turnout than we've had in many, many years. Um, now, we live in a dynamic democracy, which I think solves lots of its problems as time goes by. But to the extent that we were just inundated with negativity, it has to say something about us, too, not just them out there, because it appears to work for us. And so then the question is, what is it about you or me that causes us uh, to be part of a society right now that has grown really negative, really critical, really um, scathing in, in how we assess each other and talk about each other. Um, there are political problems out there, but there are also spiritual problems inside each of us. That's the sort of thing that Jesus is always spot on about. And I think, interestingly, today's very cryptic sayings about the end times have a lot to do with the world we live in right now, not because it's coming to an end. And maybe that's the problem. So let's take a little look at Luke 21, uh, knowing that Luke 21 is like uh, single chapters in Matthew and Mark's gospel where all of Jesus' end time sayings are collected. And saying for the last time, because next week we end our year in Luke's gospel, this is the last time I can say to you that Luke's gospel is the one most kind of akin to or familiar with the world we live in. In other words, Luke wrote out into the Roman Empire, the world empire of that time, uh, uh, on the go, affluent world, and he wrote to the movers and shakers of that world. And in many respects, it's still written to us, to the world's superpower, a place that's on the go with affluence, to movers and shakers in that larger society. And the, and the powerful thing about Luke's gospel is how relentlessly critical that gospel is of the movers and shakers, the very people it's addressed to. The story after story that is, it just goes after people because of their misuse of wealth or because of their total cluelessness in how they use their power to impact the people around them. But the Spirit of God was at work because rather than being made defensive by that writing, Ultimately, the people who heard this gospel were touched by it, as if it drew out of them 
the very thing that they knew they lacked in their lives and which they longed for, good news. So how might it still be at work amongst us today, these 2,000 years later? Because the Spirit still works, right? So take a look at chapter 21. The four verses that come before the section of today's gospel is a story that we read other years. I think a lot of you are familiar with. Jesus is sitting in the temple courtyard watching people put money into a box where the funds were then used to help the poor. And he remarks that a poor widow who puts in two coins gives more than anybody else because she gives everything she had for that day while everyone else gives out of their abundance. And it is a veiled way of Jesus saying there is something tragically wrong with this system that takes this poor widow's money, which she should actually be receiving as a poor person, but does not hold accountable the rich people who don't break a sweat by what they put in and continue to benefit from a system that, in fact, ends up hurting this poor widow. It's spiritually bankrupt. In Luke's Gospel, then, just the amorphous they, the crowd, then speak next. That's interesting because in Mark and Matthew's Gospel, it's the disciples who say the next thing. But it's as if Luke is trying to say to his audience, it's not just the disciples, it's everybody. We just don't want to hear Jesus at some level. Because what the crowd then says next to Jesus is, A, that they didn't hear anything he just said, because they say, wow, look at this temple. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. All these gifts dedicated to God in all of its grand sanctimony and superficiality. And Jesus says, Look at it now, baby, because it's going to be gone. There ain't going to be one stone left on another. It's bankrupt. God has no investment in this place. But they still don't get it. Because then they say, hey, well, tell us when this is going to happen. Because in their mindset, the only way that would happen would be if Armageddon, if the end times finally came. And if God finally fought that great battle against all the forces of evil, and everything was destroyed, and the reign of David was restored. And Jesus again has to explain, you are 180 degrees off of what I'm trying to say to you. And he then goes into that kind of usual list that, upon superficial reading, we all associate with the end times. Oh, there are going to be earthquakes and famines and wars and insurrections and rumors of all of this stuff. But you'll notice here, and when we get to the first weekend in Advent reading in two weeks, he says it even more clearly, that's not a sign. Nobody's, nobody's ever going to know when it comes. And in two weeks he'll say, I don't even know when it's going to come. And it's his subtle way of turning the whole dialogue and saying, famines and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars, those aren't signs of the end times. Those are signs of our times. That's how the world is. If you actually want the end times, which you should, then the people of God actually have to be faithful to their mission. So that in a war, world of war and famine and, and disease, if God's people were actually about peace, if they were actually about feeding and healing, then perhaps actually the goodness of the end would come. But until then, we're barking up the wrong tree. And then the last part is really powerful. Because he says, you know, if, if the people of God are faithful, 
it will engender enormous opposition. Because there are tons of people who profit from war and from famine and for lack of healing all over our world. They're not going to be happy if somebody actually works to try and change that. So you'll be persecuted. You might even be killed. But intriguingly, not a hair on your head will fail to be numbered, and by your endurance, you will get through it. And in fact, you will be given a spirit that will give you the right words at the right time. Don't prepare for stuff like that. In other words, we might be hated, but we're not trivial. And that, in fact, a faithful people has a power that they don't even know they have until we actually have to open our mouths and speak it. A simple assignment for the week to come. How often do you speak words in favor of peace, healing, feeding? Speak them over and over and over again that the kingdom could actually begin to come. Commentators on the left and right, and I think probably accurately so, would say of our material, individualistic, competitive society um, that we have also kind of generated a a culture of of, of victims. And I I think that's true because I think regardless of where you fall in in terms of your skin color or your economic status or, or lots of other things we measure ourselves by, we do seem to spend a lot of time feeling as if we've not been heard, as if we've somehow been victimized. And when you feel victimized, then there also has to be somebody to blame. And in talking about this, you realize that there are victims in our world, people who have been the subject of crime and abuse, and that's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking in the broader sense of of your perspective and um, uh, assumptions about life. Uh, To the extent that is kind of true of our culture, it actually makes a lot of sense because um, economically and in business and in sports, competition maybe makes a lot of sense. But in our relationships and within our our communities, when you're trying to measure stuff, when you're trying to compete, um, that always backfires on us. You can't keep score in loving, intimate communal relationships, and in fact, every attempt to do so uh, sets up a cycle of disappointment, of victimization, and of blame. When Jesus said, you know, the the first will be last, if you seek your life, you're going to lose it, this was the type of stuff he was talking about. When you run your personal life the way maybe things out there run, it's not going to be good. So he calls us to something different and better than that. Uh, Luke's whole gospel perhaps suggests to each of us the possibility that we look for the wrong thing when we look in our most immediate support structures for something that will be good for us. Well, I was kind of struck by how people join a church because they want to go someplace they, they like and someplace that kind of supports their values. I, I think Luke's gospel would say the reverse. Join someplace that makes you feel uncomfortable, that forces you to change. But to what? When you read the whole of the gospel, or even just today's gospel, you know what Jesus is saying to us? 
You know, all he longs for is the fact that instead of keeping score, we'll give it away. We'll give love away. We'll give forgiveness away. We'll give grace away. We'll lose on purpose at some level. I love Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 8 where he says, you know, you, you can be totally right about something. But if it offends somebody else, if it weakens somebody else's faith, if it pushes somebody else away, then be wrong. It's more important that your neighbor come closer to God than you be right about something. When we have to be right, we're wrong. When we have to win, we lose. When we desperately try and keep ourselves alive, then we die. So be hated. It's not a popularity contest out there when it comes to being faithful to the basic things that Jesus talks about. But you aren't trivial. And together, we aren't trivial. We have an enormous capacity for good to make our world simple, not brutal, not insulting, not disrespectful. And it's just how we conduct ourselves and who we choose to be. It's not up to us to blame them. It's up to us to be who we are as Jesus' people. I don't think it's a trivial way to end the sermon at all to quote a common little phrase from our modern vernacular. I think basically Jesus is just saying in the gospel lesson today, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And Jesus gentle, good shepherd that he is? I mean, honestly, he's the toughest one of all. And that's good news. Done.